The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Less than three weeks to go in any normal election season, the revelation that the sun of a major party candidate is pimping his dad out to some of the sleaziest criminals in the Ukraine, which is a seriously competitive title, would be the October surprise, especially if it came with videos of the sun consorting with hookers. But the news broke uh, in the early hours of the morning, uh, and it demonstrated to anybody paying attention that Joe and his minders have been lying all campaign long about their ignorance of Hunter's quote-unquote business. Business. Uh, and yet it, uh, it broke and just lay there. And nobody even bothered pretending that there was going to be any serious mainstream media effort to challenge Biden on the issue. He is the swamp. Um, I, I believe the president seriously misnamed him by calling him Sleepy Joe. That sounds so benign. In fact, he's Creepy Joe. He likes tweaking the nipples of eight-year-old girls, uh, which is not a taste many of us acquire. He's Creepy Joe and he's Sleazy Joe. Sleazy. He has been as sleazy as any Ukrainian oligarch. He has been in quote-unquote public service all his life. He pretends to be just another Amtrak commuter. And yet, not only has he wound up a multi-bazillionaire, but so have his crackhead son and his corrupt brother. This is an evil racket. It was the racket that Trump ran against in 2016. Uh, and four years later, the swamp has asserted itself by running a candidate who, even in a near vegetative state, as many swamps are, remains the very embodiment of that evil racket. On a tangential subject, are you following the Amy Coney Barrett hearing? I'm not, I'm not, mainly because a judge's republic is a contradiction in terms, as Antonin Scalia, for one, well understood. So even a victory on such turf is still emblematic of decline. None of America's constitutional framers would recognise a land in which the appointment of a judge, a judge, is a convulsive event. Still, this moment gave me a laugh. Uh, Judge Barrett uh, has been informed and articulate for hours at a stretch. So Senator Cornyn asked her to show us the voluminous notes she obviously required for such a performance. You know, most of us have multiple notebooks and notes and books and things like that in front of us. Can you hold up what you've been referring to and answering our questions? At which point Amy Coney Barrett held up a blank Senate notepad, such as is complimentary, as I know from my own appearance before this wretched, miserable body, uh, is complimentary for uh, all Senate witnesses, along with the pencil and the glass of ambient temperature water. Just a blank notepad. Is there anything on it? Uh, that letterhead that says United States Senate. That's, imp that's impressive. 
Well, I take his point by comparison with fools like Robert Mueller or corrupt dissemblers like James Comey. It is impressive. Uh, I can only tell you that when I testified before the Senate, I had no notes other than my opening statement because I'd assumed it was like being in the witness box at your local county court, where even on the most piffling matter, uh, one is forbidden from having notes to refer to. Uh, When I'm not behind this microphone, I'm mostly being litigated against, and in a week or two I have to do a seven-hour deposition in which I will not be permitted to have notes. So you have to be able to remember all kinds of stuff for just seven for, for just seven hours. You have to be able to pull it out of your, the, the depths of your brain. That's just standard, unless you're a U.S. senator. When you're giving evidence before them, you're very aware of the vast bloated army of staffers sitting behind them, referring to notes and devices and hurriedly whispering among themselves. And most amazingly, Uh, When the senator is a serious floundering twit, such as, in my case, Ed Markey from Massachusetts or uh, uh, latterly Diane Feinstein from California, the serious floundering twit has to be fed lines into their ears by their handlers. That would be uh, forbidden for a prosecuting counsel Uh, uh, examining a witness in any county courthouse. Uh, If you think Biden has been a pitiful figure these last six months, well, Ed Markey has been like that for years. It's not abnormal for a senator. It's very normal. Again, these ludicrous emirs of incumbistan entouraged up the wazoo are nothing the framers would have foreseen or recommended. Um, Speaking of... uh, Speaking of judges, uh, Chuck Douglas, a former New Hampshire Supreme Court justice, former Republican congressman, and once upon a time briefly my own legal counsel, in which capacity he talked me into doing an event for Republican candidates down in Concord, uh, which I did because uh, I thought uh, Chuck was a serious conservative. Uh, Chuck Douglas and Tom Rath, a former Republican attorney general in New Hampshire, and long-time, whatever they're called, Republican National Committee man, or whatever they, they're called. Um, Tom Rath, anyway, embodies my old line that when Democrats win, they're in power, and when Republicans win, they're in office. Uh, he was in office for decades and uh, came perfectly to embody the sclerosis and mummification of what was once New Hampshire's dominant political force. Anyway, Chuck Douglas, I could I could do three three hours on uh, on these guys. Chuck Douglas and Tom Rath have both announced that they're supporting Joe Biden. They so dislike Trump uh, that they're voting for a China stooge running on court packing, Burisma sleaze, the Green New Deal, the death of American manufacturing, uh, the death of a sense of purpose and dignity to life for many American communities, uh, mass illegal immigration with a fast track to citizenship, another decade of toss-potting around pinpricks on the other side of the map whose populations despise us in part because whatever serious war aims we ever had expired at least 15 years ago. And all that, along with ever-tightening restraints on freedom of speech and other core liberties, especially when it comes to, say, criticism of China. Uh, Because apparently, 
Uh, these quote-unquote lifetime conservatives can't tell the difference between mainstream moderation and the swamp on steroids as Chairman Xi completes his takeover of the planet. In the end, there are not many real conservatives in public life. And there are certainly not many conservatives who grasp the stakes. Certainly not these two lifetime political heavyweights in New Hampshire's somewhat undernourished swamp. So you, the citizen, the individual in whichever state you're in, are going to have to do the heavy lifting yourself, particularly if you're in a swing state like New Hampshire, uh, where uh, half the political class on your own team are lining up to endorse Joe and Kamala. You are going to have to do the lifting yourself and drag your candidates across the finish line. And as I, as I recommended, we know you're going to vote uh, for uh, the conservative cause, but you gotta you gotta find someone else. You gotta find uh, your most uh, the liberal friend who's most open to an argument uh, that the path uh, these guys are on goes straight off the cliff. And you're gonna have to convert someone and drag them across the finish line because all the people you voted for, like in the last 30, 40 years, uh, are now telling you that Joe's the man for them. Uh, this is tough, thankless business, but it's doable. And obviously, it's actually more satisfying to win without pathetic finger-in-the-windy grifters like Tom Rath. Um, the Presidential Debate Commission, uh, as you know, has successfully kiboshed the debate series because actually many of the people, many of the so-called Republicans on the Presidential Debate Commission uh, are, in fact, uh, no different from Tom Rath and Chuck Douglas. There's Olympia Snow and John Danforth and so forth. And so they've uh, 86 the debate series. So Donald J. Trump has nothing other than his base and his preferred venue of nightly rallies, where last night you might have noticed that his outreach to key demographics is getting more direct. I ask you to do me a favor. Suburban women, will you please like me? Remember? Please. Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? The other thing, I don't have that much time to be that nice. You know, I can do it, but I got to go quickly. We don't have time. They want me to be politically correct. Oh, yes, let's discuss it. Let's talk about it over the next 10 years. No, no, no. No, we saved your, you, we saved suburbia in the U.S. Okay, and I think we're going to see that the women really like Trump a lot. That's happened last time, remember? Suburban women, please like me. I saved your damn neighborhood. <laughs> I don't think they focus group that one. Uh, but it's good to know suburban woman is now an official identity group identity, like being Hispanic or gay or Muslim or transgender. I'm suburban woman. Hear me, carpool. Uh, I do hope uh, that not too, uh, on not too distant a day that Neil Gorsuch actually reads suburban woman into the categories protected by the Civil Rights Act. A rock-ribbed originalist like him will be doing that any day now. I don't think Nancy Pelosi qualifies as a suburban woman. Her mansion in Pacific Heights is within San Francisco's urban limits, and certainly 
Uh, the surrounding streets bear the same characteristics as the rest of the city, deranged derelicts and discarded needles and human faecal matter all over the sidewalks. Fortunately, her limo just whisks her past all that through the gates and into her secured territory. If you believe the polls, Nancy is sitting on a double-digit lead that will deliver to her and Joe and Kamala and Chuck and AOC and Ilan... Uh, not just the House, but the Senate and the Oval Office. Yet even with a friendly interviewer like Wolf Blitzer, she doesn't have the calm demeanor of someone sitting on her lead. But again, you've been on JAG defending the administration all this time with no knowledge of the difference between our two bills. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to say that to you in person. Right, Madam Speaker, these are, these are incredibly difficult times right now. Uh, and we'll leave it on that note. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us. No, we'll us. leave it on the vote that you are not right on this, Wolf, and I hate to say that to uh, you. It's not about me. It's about millions of Americans who can't put food on the table, who can't pay the rent, and we represent them. And we represent them. Getting by these long food lines that we're seeing. Them. I know we you know are. Them. I'm, I'm just we saying. We represent them, and we know them. As we, we say, we know them. We represent them. Don't let yes. the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say. It here is in nowhere Washington. near perfect. Madam Speaker. Always the case, but we're not even close to the good. All right, let's see what happens because every day is critically, critically important. Thanks so much Thank for joining us. Thank you for your us. sensitivity to yeah. our constituents' needs. I am sensitive to them because I see them on the street begging for food begging for money. Madam Speaker, thank you Have so you much. Have you said them? We feed them. We feed them. We'll continue this conversation down the road. Just for the record, quote unquote, we don't pay for that uh, in the sense that Nancy pays for it. The American taxpayers do. Uh, Speaker Pelosi doesn't sound like this thing's in the bag, does she? You should be heartened by that. A quick story that I touched on uh, on Rush the other day, as many of you have heard, the Irish Supreme Court uh, ruled last week that the bread in a Subway sandwich shop sandwich is not bread. Subway, one of the most recognizable sandwich shops, was told it's not even serving bread. At least according to Ireland's Supreme Court, the Irish Independent reports that Subway's heated sandwiches like the hot meatball sub doesn't have bread because it's too sugary. This is a tax case. It's about the rate at which value-added tax is assessed according to whether the item sold is one of the basic necessities of life, like bread, and um, uh, thus is exempt from... Uh, the full rate of VAT. And as anyone who has tasted Subway bread should know, it is full of sugar. Almost all American bread that you buy in a supermarket is full of sugar. Uh, so the Irish Supreme Court has upheld a judgment that Subway bread in particular contains 10 times the amount of sugar permissible to meet the definition of bread. Uh, I read the full judgment, and for the purposes of Irish tax law, Subway bread meets the definition of confectionery or candy. Basically, a Subway footlong is a giant Snickers bar uh, with a couple of meatballs, a slice of lettuce, and some banana peppers shoved in the middle. The whole freshly prepared theatre you engage in at Subway, where the clerk invites you to pick out the bread and the cheese and the tomatoes and pickles, is just that, theatre. It is food preparation as performance art, and there isn't anything in the least bit healthy about it, 
because the bread you're invited to select, whichever particular slice you select, is not in fact bread. Now, I would love it if Judge Amy Coney Barrett were to get to pronounce on cases like this uh, rather than join the eight other fellows in torturing the plain meaning of the Constitution to discover that these 18th century powdered wig blokes had cannily made provision for partial birth, abortion, gay marriage and six foot two transgender jocks on the girls' school track team, all of which makes a mockery of law. I may say, too, that in a hyper-regulated state in which every aspect of life is policed by the authorities, and if you're a philosophical conservative, you'll undoubtedly uh, reject that concept of the state, but it's here in the United States and throughout the British Commonwealth and throughout continental Europe. Uh, But in a hyper-regulated state in which every aspect of life is rigorously policed, the Charleston Chew masquerading as a loaf of bread underlines one of the great contradictions of the micro-regulated state, that it doesn't achieve any worthwhile public policy goals. With the COVID, one of the reasons, a very obvious reason, why certain countries are less afflicted than other countries and why certain demographic groups are more afflicted than others is because certain countries are healthier than other countries and certain demographic groups within countries are less healthy uh, than other demographic groups. And eating a subway footlong every day for 10 years because it's prepared in front of your eyes so it must be healthy is a good way to wind up with the kind of underlying condition that will make things go very badly Uh, if you happen to catch the COVID. I'm surprised Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks have so little to say on the matter. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com slash T-F-O-T. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. Bummer goes to the flickers, Massachusetts goes for suicide, and who needs presidential debates? It's October 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. Poland is no longer at war with Russia, but it is with Lithuania. The Southern Tyrol is no longer Austrian, but Slovene Carinthia is. In the Latvian capital of Riga, Poland and Soviet Russia have signed a peace treaty. Just next door, the Lithuanian capital of Vilnius has fallen to the Poles in the Polish-Lithuanian War. The Polish army's commander, General Zeligowski, has proclaimed a new state, the Republic of Central Lithuania, with Vilnius as the capital and 
and the general himself as its leader. In the capital city of the third Baltic state, Tartu in Estonia, Soviet Russia and Finland have settled the problematic matter of the Russo-Finnish border. The southern Tyrol has been formally transferred from Austria to Italy. On the other hand, a plebiscite in the predominantly Slovene region of Carinthia uh, gave voters a choice between staying with Austria or joining the new state of Yugoslavia. By 59 to 41%, they have voted to remain Austrian. Somewhere in Ireland, far over the sea, a sweet little Colleen is waiting for me. When I went away, I said it won't be long. Sure, all day it's me who keeps singing this song. Pretty Kitty Kelly, she's the only girl for me. Pretty Kitty Kelly, she's all my Kitty Kelly may be pretty, but almost everything else in Ireland is turning ugly very fast. Prime Minister David Lloyd George has returned to his native land of Wales to deliver a blistering speech at Carnarvon, noting the number of policemen murdered by Irish Republicans by being shot in the back and insisting that the right of a minority to disrupt only goes so far. Uh, Lord George cited Abraham Lincoln's position in the American Civil War and argued that, quote, the southern states of America had just as good a right to set up an independent republic as Ireland, Wales or Scotland, but that Mr Lincoln was absolutely right in saying that there is a limit to the right that even a separate community has to tear up a large combination which has been working together for common ends. The Prime Minister said that Notwithstanding the enthusiasm of his friend and colleague Lord Grey, there would never be a dominion of Ireland equivalent to Canada or Australia. Speaking of Wales, the Prince thereof has returned to London after a six-month tour through various parts of the British Empire. The Prince of Wales arrived aboard HMS Renown at Portsmouth and then took the train up to the capital to be greeted by his future subjects, cheering at every station and remote village halt en route. In the United States, ground has been broken for a first vehicular tunnel under the Hudson River intended to connect Lower Manhattan in New York with Jersey City in New Jersey. Democrat presidential nominee James Cox has got the left all alone again blues. Governor Cox had proposed to his Republican rival Warren Harding 
uh, that the two men should share a stage together in order to participate in a debate on the question of whether the United States should join the League of Nations. Senator Harding couldn't be less interested. As his spokesman, Indiana Senator Harry New, put it, dismissing the debate proposal, quote, I would not for a moment consider a proposition so utterly absurd. In France, 42 passengers have been killed and another 100 injured. The Paris to Nantes Express crashed into a freight train at the station in Rouille, just northwest of the French capital. In happier news, the French aviator Bernard Barney de Romanet has set a new speed record. He flew one kilometre in 12.3 seconds, which is equivalent to a speed of 292.82 kilometres an hour or 181.95 miles per hour. In baseball, the Cleveland Indians have won the 1920 World Series, uh, which is, of course, a best-of-nine competition. Uh, they defeated the Brooklyn Robins 3-0 in the seventh game uh, to take the series five games to two. Are you a Burmese fan of the flickers? Would you like to see a picture in Burma that isn't either American or English? Well, now you can. The very first homemade photo play has opened in Burma's capital city of Rangoon. Love and Liquor is the tale of a man whose life is destroyed by alcohol and gambling. It's currently playing at the Royal Cinema in Rangoon. The National Save a Life League, America's first suicide prevention organization, has announced the highest number of daily reported suicides in the United States since it began keeping statistics in 1906. The previous high uh, was 106 suicides in a single day. On October the 15th, 115 persons took their own lives in America, 62 male and 53 female, including 10 children, 7 boys and 3 girls. Six of the children shot themselves, two took poison, one gas, and the last jumped from a building. Two women killed themselves after returning from dances. Another poisoned herself after returning from the pictures. The most suicidal state is Massachusetts, followed by Pennsylvania, Ohio and New York. Dr. Duncan McDougall has died at the age of 54. A distinguished surgeon from Haverhill, Massachusetts, he is the man who, after measuring the reduction in the mass of his patients immediately after the point of death, calculated that the human soul weighs 21 grams. The souls of those 115 dead Americans on a grim October day would therefore weigh 2.4 kilograms or a little over five pounds. And that's the way of the world, October 1920. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today Oh, you know what this music means. 
Mark's mailbox is on the air. Oh, thank you for the kind notes about my debut on Zoom for my live appearance down under uh, with John Roscombe, Rachel Guy and the other fellas at Australia's IPA. Uh, That's not uh, India Pale Ale, but the Institute of Public Affairs, which is actually just as fortifying, even more fortifying. And if you drink it in in huge quantities, it has the additional benefit that you're not face down in a pool of your own vomit at the end of the night. So we had a great time with the IPA uh, yesterday, Tuesday, uh, Oz time, and I loved it. And I'm looking forward to setting foot uh, on Australian soil very soon, uh, once all this COVID nonsense uh, has been liquidated. Michael Lindermood, I hope I pronounced that correctly because it's a beautifully mellifluous name. Michael Lindermood, a rather new member of the Mark Stein Club from beautiful Vermont, and we are delighted to have him, and we especially welcome members Uh, from hardcore blue states, because it's important to turn the tide. Michael writes, if Donald J. Trump had run as a Democrat, would he be just as vilified? Would you have voted for him, everything else being the same? Almost half of his agenda is something Democrats would be in favour of. Uh, That's a very interesting question, Michael. Four years ago, Donald J. Trump uh, was not an ideological candidate. And because of that, he correctly deduced that 2016 was not an ideological election. It was about how crap everything is getting and has got. Um, he, he wasn't and still isn't in the least bit interested in philosophical conservatism, which is why uh, Glenn Beck was a never-Trumper until very recently, and so was National Review, and so was Mark Levin until 20 minutes before Election Day. Trump uh, didn't destroy American conservatism. It largely destroyed itself by opening up too huge a gulf between its own preoccupations and the American people. Whatever you feel about gay marriage and Obamacare, uh, the Democrats deliver for their base. For a generation, the Republicans hadn't. Again, whatever you feel about Bill Clinton, Democrat voters look back on the Clinton era fondly. Republican voters don't feel the same way about Bush 1 or Bush 2, yet the donor class decided that what the GOP needed in 2016 was Bush 3, in a republic of over 300 million people. Uh, Trump was no more ideological than this. He saw that for a lot of Americans, life was crap and getting crapper, and he wanted to make it less crap. On litmus test issues such as abortion, he was like most wealthy fellows who live on Fifth Avenue. He didn't think about it, and he didn't want to think about it. On health care, he said that uh, socialised health care in Canada and Scotland seemed to be working just fine. And I would estimate that to be his actual genuine feelings on the matter. What's interesting, however, is that once he decided to run on the Republican side, he took the Republican platform more seriously uh, than two generations of do-nothing Republicans have taken it. So, for example, he moved the US embassy to Jerusalem. Again, Uh, Not because he particularly cares about it one way or the other, but because do-nothing Republicans had promised to do it uh, and then just sat on their flabby asses for election cycle after election cycle. It's almost like it's uh, just some boob bait for the bubbers, as we used to say. Uh, But as Michael says, he could have run in either party, uh, in theory. 
had he been a Democrat, he would have been a character. Just another example of how all the celebrities, the people you see on TV, the glamorous people, the people whose lives you follow, they're in, you know who their, their spouses are, you know who they're having affairs with, all those people are Democrats. And the grabbing women by the whatnot tape would never have surfaced, but even if it had, it would have been rationalised as just this season's Bill Clinton, a larger-than-life figure whose needs are necessarily larger-than-life, uh, and that's a price uh, worth paying because he's our guy. Uh, the characterization of him would have been entirely different. But um, the point still stands. He's not Ted Cruz. He's not Mark Levin. Uh, he's a largely non-ideological figure interested in changing uh, the way things were in 2016. And the Democrats could have worked with him, except that's not how they operate. He's like John McCain, uh, you know, reach across the aisle, maverick. Oh, the press love him and they cover up for him when he forgets himself and makes an off-colour joke about Chelsea Clinton into an open microphone. Oh, he's like uh, Mitt Romney. Oh, Mitt, such a moderate... Proud to sign gay marriage into law in Massachusetts. Everyone in the media loved Mitt and loved McCain until they ran for president. And then they were just Hitler like all the other Republican candidates. Uh, the Republican Party for years has thrown up the worst, most ineffectual Hitlers. Hitler should sue to get his good name back. What does all that tell you? It tells you that it's not about the issues. It's about power. Uh, people sometimes point out the internal contradictions of the Rainbow Coalition as if it's a big gotcha moment. Oh, look, the Democrats are all about the gays and they're all about the Muslims, even though Islam believes in throwing gays off tall buildings. So what? The Democrats are about power. And if that necessi necessitates being simultaneously pro-gay and pro-Islam, they'll do it. And if, as is already happening in other parts of the West, one day the Muslims require more pandering to than the gays, uh, well, then uh, they'll sell out the gays and they'll be happy, uh, at least metaphorically, to toss them off tall buildings, along with the feminists and uh, all the rest, because it's about power. So there's nothing for the Dems in assisting Trump in becoming a successful Republican president, which is, among other things, why, as we heard earlier, they're screwing the American people over on a COVID relief bill. Trump knew all these guys. Half of them came to various of his weddings. But he put an R after his name. And now to the Clintons and to Pelosi, it is necessary for him to fail. Sorry, Donald, nothing personal, strictly business. This is how the Democrats operate. It's about power. Uh, and if you're that concerned about power, you can turn on a dime. Oh, look, we've been enslaving black people for generations. Phew, now we're Black Lives Matter and we do a perfect twirl on that dime, uh, except for odd figures like Governor Northam, uh, who blow the transition phase uh, by wandering around as a woke mammy singer. They're serious about power in a way that the Republicans are not. Mark Stein's Last Call.
The new James Bond film has now been all but totaled by the COVID. Uh, it has been postponed a second time. It supposedly will open next April, a year later than scheduled, but I wouldn't be surprised if that date doesn't get pushback too. So we have nothing but the back catalogue. Dr. No was the first Bond film and From Russia With Love the second, but it was the third in the series that definitively put in place the formula that to one degree or another has held now for almost six decades. Uh, Goldfinger is the one with the pre-title sequence leading into the song with the dolly birds twirling around gun barrels and uh, all the rest of it. I feel a pang of regret at the way so many people who made that film so memorable are taking their leave. Honor Blackman, who played Pussy Galore, unforgettably, died a few months ago. And a few days ago, we lost Margaret Nolan, who was the gilded girl in the title sequence. Not the dead gold-sprayed body in the hotel room scene later on. That was Shirley Eaton, but in the title sequence. Uh, Miss Nolan had small but memorable parts, not just in Goldfinger, but in another uh, landmark film from the 60s, Help with the Beatles. She was in Ferry Cross the Mersey with Jerry and the Pacemakers and a handful of carry-on movies, including Carry On Matron and Carry On Dick. She was in The Saint and Danger Man, The Morecambe and Wise Show and Brideshead Revisited and then decided she wanted to be a visual artist. She was secure enough to enjoy her moment and enjoy that it endured across the decades. After the title sequence of Goldfinger, the camera swoops uh, over the Miami Beach uh, skyline and we glimpse the Fontainebleau Hotel, the famous Fontainebleau Hotel, all to some especially fine John Barry music. And then we come down to earth where Margaret Nolan as Dink is giving Sean Connery as 007 a massage. In fact, neither Connery nor Miss Nolan are anywhere near Miami Beach. They're on a soundstage at Pinewood Studios in England, uh, pretending to be a massage session in Florida. Alas for 007, the much-needed downtime is interrupted by the CIA's Felix Leiter, who needs Bond and fast. How's this? That's nice. Very nice. Just here? No, a little lower, darling. I thought I'd find you in good hands. Felix! Felix, <laughs> how are you? Dink, meet Felix Leiter. Hello. Felix, say hello to Dink. Hi, Dink. Dink, say goodbye to Felix. Hmm? Uh, man talk. That crisp, clean slap is Sean Connery playfully swatting Margaret Nolan's delightful posterior. Don't try that at home, boys and girls. Uh, that dialogue is by Richard Maybaum and or Paul Dean, in case you're so triggered you need to file hate crime charges. Dink herself was happy to recreate the moment at fan conventions through the years. Dead at the age of 76, Margaret Nolan. Tell you what, let's hear the song to which she provided such a memorable visual accompaniment. This was the film in which John Barry demonstrated conclusively that he'd single-handedly invented a new genre of music, spy music. 
Unfortunately, we can't afford Shirley Bassey, so... He's the man, the man with the Midas touch A spider's touch Such a cold finger Beckons you to enter his web of sin Don't go in Golden words he will pour in your ear but his lies can't disguise what you fear A golden girl knows when he's kissed her It's the kiss of death from Mr. Goldfinger Pretty girl, beware of this heart of gold This heart is cold Dame Shirley says if that's the alternative, she'll do the out chorus. Stand well back and slow the tempo, boys. Golden words he will pour in your ear, but his lies can't disguise what you fear. For a golden girl knows when he's kissed her, it's the kiss of death from Mr. Pretty girl, beware of this heart of gold This heart is cold He loves only gold Only gold He loves gold He loves only gold Only gold He loves God Goldfinger Music and lyrics by John Barry Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley. John Barry worked hard on that tune. He and Michael Caine were flatmates back then, and uh, Michael had many sleepless nights with John pounding the old Joanna uh, to get uh, Goldfinger out. But the first time he played the theme for his lyricists, Brickus and Newley, and asked them about the opening section, Tony looked at Leslie and they both burst out in unison, Moon River. <laughs> That will do it for today's show. Oh, no, wait, we were lost in piffling distractions 
of disease and lockdown and Chicom hegemony when Honor Blackman died. So let me belatedly tip my hat musically to her too. Herbert Kretzmer, whose lyrics for Les Miserables are known around the planet, wrote this song years before Les Mis with the composer Dave Lee and Miss Blackman recorded it with her then co-star from the hit TV show The Avengers, Patrick McNee. And the single died until it was exhumed over a quarter century later and hit the pop charts in 1990. How do you top uh, Sean Connery swatting Margaret Nolan's bottom? Uh, well, John Steed of the Avengers, Patrick McNee, singing about sexy little schoolgirls and the kinkiness of leather is all I got. Last week, Herbert Kretzmer celebrated, uh, incredibly, his 95th birthday. Many happy returns, Herbie, and many more songs and books, too. He's a beautiful writer. Uh, but if you've ever wondered what Herbie was doing before Lame is, here it is, somewhat to the befuddlement of the BBC Top of the Pops presenter. Well, about this time of year, towards Christmas, some records, how shall I say, deviate from the norm. From the cult 60s TV show The Avengers, Kinky Boots. See you on the telly tonight with Tucker. Stay safe, stay free. Everybody's going for those kinky boots, kinky boots. Kinky boots, it's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the brutes. Borrowed from the brutes. Kinky boots, fashion magazines, they wear them. And you rush to obey like the women in the harem. Full length, half length. Fully fashioned, half length. Brown boots, black boots. Patent leather jack boots. Low boots, high boots. Lovely lanky thigh boots. We all dig those boots. Everybody's crazy for those kinky boots, kinky boots. Kinky boots. And whether you're in evening dress or bathing suit. You wear boots, boots, a kinky boots. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. There are 20 million women wearing kinky boots, kinky boots. Puss in boots, footwear manufacturers are gathering the fruits. Gathering the fruits. Kinky boots, advertising men say try em. And you all run amok like a flock of sheep to buy em. Sweet girls, street girls, frumpy little beach girls, square girls, cool girls, sexy little school girls, maiden aunties, they all dig those boots. Everybody's rushing for those Russian boots. Russian boots. Kinky boots, cover, cover up, up the center, little, little tender boots. With, with kinky, slinky. Leather is so kinky. Come and get those kinky boots, boots, kinky boots. The Mark Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oco Media. All rights reserved.